1: says Yoshida Hayato, the still-youthful author of an erudite monograph on the true age of the earth, surveying his audience of 80 or 90 scholars. I conclude this widely held belief that Japan is an impregnable fortress is a pernicious delusion. Honourable academicians, we are a ramshackle farmhouse with crumbling walls, a collapsing roof and covetous neighbours. Yoshida is succumbing to a bone disease and projecting his voice over the large 60-mat hall drains him. To our northwest, a morning's voyage from Tsushima Island, live the vain glorious Koreans, and who shall forget those provocative banners their last embassy flaunted? "Inspectorate of dominions, and we are purity, implying, naturally, you are not. Some of the scholars grizzle in agreement. Northeast lies the vast domain of Ezo, home to the savage Ainu, but also to Russians, who map our coastlines and claim Karafuto. They call it Sakhalin. It is a mere 12 years since a Frenchman, Yoshida prepares his lips, La Perouse, named the straits between Ezo and Karafuto after himself. Would the French tolerate the Yoshida straits off their coast? The point is well made and well received. The recent incursions by Captain Benyowski and Captain Laxman warn us of a near future when straying Europeans no longer request provisions but demand trade, keys, warehouses, fortified posts, unequal treaties. Colonies shall take root like thistles and weeds, and then we shall understand that our impregnable fortress was a placebo and nothing more, and that our seas are no impassable moat, but, as my far-sighted, colleague hayashi shihei wrote an ocean road without frontiers that links china and
0: holland and edo's nihombashi bridge david mitchell is the author of ghost written number nine dream and the man booker prize finalist cloud atlas and black swan green his new novel is the thousand autumns of jacob de zoet thank you for joining me david
1: thank you very much for having me in your studio
0: you know, David, um, your last novel, Black Swan Green, had a very uh, obvious and definite autobiographical feel to it. It was set where and when you grew up. Yet and I also think that this new novel, which is set more than 200 years ago, also has a, a, a biographical, autobiographical feel to it. I think that this new novel... It's about translation, and I think this novel speaks to me as that in that novels are themselves a translation.
1: That's a deep question for this time of day, Rick. They're a translation of a sort. They do translate, sure, what is in the writer's head uh, through the medium of the novel uh, into something that the reader will then interpret and sort of reconstruct in his or her own head. So I'm with you there, uh, but I'll probably need you to elaborate a little bit more.
0: Well, it seems to me that this novel, in a sense, uh, translates some of your experiences uh, in the present. This is, I mean, even though we were reading a novel set in 1799 in, in Nagasaki in, in Japan. We're sitting here in the 21st century, uh, unless you've invented a time machine we don't know about. (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
1: unfortunately, no.
0: Your experiences are all firmly here in the 20th and the 21st century. And I think that though this novel has this great and richly researched historical setting, it's also very much about the present.
1: Now I'm with you, yeah. Um, Probably two responses. One... um, a novel cannot but be um, drawn from the writer's own experiences. I mean, we are only one person. Uh, we have no one else's experiences to draw from and nobody else's mind to, sort of merge, with, to merge what we research with what we have lived uh, into fiction. So sure, uh, I'm completely with you there. It is about the present, but, because, but it's, that's because it, it's about the world. Uh, I don't think you really have to sort of artificially suggest that, say, um, the toxic loans bubble uh, and the kind of activities at the end of the 18th century that brought down the biggest multinational company in the world, the Dutch East Indies Company. You don't really have to try too hard to sort of make comparisons because the forces at play, corruption, every individual helping himself or herself to the pot, uh, without thinking about the whole and what it will do to the pot and uh, and, and 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 the um, innocent outsiders who are relying on it for their livelihoods. These are universal themes. Uh, so just just to we rec- can just to recreate the world as it was two hundred years ago. It's still the world, and the periodic table of the human condition is still the same now as it was then. Sort of. Love, death, sex, work, right at the top, going down to sort of the heavier, more subtle elements, um, or not so subtle, but jealousy, hatred, um, envy, homesickness, and down sort of these, these, these elemental emotions that we feel in the course of our lives. Uh, if you write, hopefully, well about it at one point in human history, it's already relevant because we're still the same, it's more or less built the same, even though our societies may look very different.
0: You know, one of the things that that uh, I love about this novel is the language, and the language itself seems to be uh, also—translation seems to me to be something, in, or interpretation seems to be at the heart uh, of this novel, or one of the many hearts of this novel. It's one of the hearts, sure. Sure. Uh,
1: At first, I was afraid that the fact that the Dutch don't really understand the Japanese very well, the Japanese don't really understand Dutch very well, and the British, who arrive towards the end, don't understand either very well. I thought this would make the novel more or less impossible. So I started off thinking, how can I avoid the problem by rather implausible subplots, justifying how one translator or a few speakers could gain fluency in another language group's language? Only when I gave up doing that did the novel really begin to take off and only when I thought, actually, now this is something I can use, an as- uh, I can use this as an asset. They don't understand one another very well, but, but that's not necessarily a problem if I handle it right. If, for example, I have uh, a main character who is a translator and I show him sort of stuck in the middle of having to translate something that's really way above his fluency level to another group of people uh, who are waiting to hear these imported words of wisdom through his mouth. What would it be like to be in that situation? Uh, well, if you've lived in another country, then you know. If you've tried to learn the language, uh, it's, uh, it's not easy. But uh, it also gives you a position of power, because even though you're not fluent, you are the best there is. Uh, and you can kind of say what you want. You can mistranslate a hundred into a thousand, and keep the spare nine hundred that that will be winging your way. For example, language is power, and to think about translation, it's actually to think about power.
0: You know, uh, I I love this this portrait uh, of the two cultures at, at this meeting point that you create. Talk about uh, discovering this meeting point, just at, in terms of historical research.
1: Um. Short story easily told. I was in Nagasaki in 1994, backpacking, trying to find Chinatown for a cheap lunch, but I couldn't read the streetcar signs very well. I mistranslated them. (laughs) So I got off the streetcar at this place called Dejima, or a small ward called Dejima Ward, and walking around just found a few warehouses, obviously reconstructed from an earlier era that was what was then just a small little museum to dejima although in the 16 years since then it's been largely reconstructed so if you liked the book you can go and walk the streets now although the sea's moved because of land reclamation so uh, it's now a sort of it's now m- marooned in an urban lagoon researching it probably the best source were the captain's logs the chief resident's daily journals that uh, the chief residents of Degema and, and all the trading posts in the in, in the Dutch Empire, they were obliged to keep, to explain what they were doing with the money. They've been translated into English, so uh, I drew a lot from those and, and, and other academic sources as well. I had a few interviews with historians who put up with my undergraduate level questions. And um, That was one kind of research. And then the other is just the research that you have to do when you're writing a historical novel just to... Just to try and get everything right. Uh, just to finish the sentence, actually. If uh, someone's having a shave, then hang on. When was shaving foam invented? Uh, and if it was invented in time, then was it affordable to this character? So you have to go away and research that for half the
0: morning and then come back, and then you can finish your sentence. Boy, that sounds challenging. One of the, This book has lots of drawings in it. Did you do those drawings yourself? or? Uh,
1: my mum did some, and my, uh, they were both artists in, in, in earlier lives, so uh, I've got some great free in-house uh, art resources to draw from. And there's some um, engravings from the 18th century, some mm-hmm. medical texts that are now happily out of a copyright, so uh, the engravers won't
0: come banging on my door looking for royalties. One of the things that, that I think is really interesting about this book is the the portrait you give us uh, of the the japanese culture and it's a culture that is uh closed off but yet the when we look at it the, the bureaucracy that that we encounter right at the beginning i mean that seems positively modern
1: yeah um the japanese state has a history of massaging downwards uh unemployment figures by overemployment certainly in the state sector by giving work to three Japanese civil servants, which one American could do on his or her own, I think. It's the way the country works. It worked very, very well in the immediate post-war period, of course, extremely well indeed. So I'm not knocking it. Confucian states also, China, would be the most striking example sort of a, have a tradition of of large state bureaucracies. and. When the historical winds are blowing the favour, it turns them into a powerful economic superpower. And when not, it doesn't. But, of course, from their point of view, we're the weird ones. From their point of view, what, you just sort of throw people to the walls like this when, when their usefulness is expired. How can you do that? You know, so from that perspective, laissez-faire, devil-take-the-hindmost philosophy and ways of building state institutions is equally strange
0: now, one of the things that, that I found uh, that I really enjoyed about this book was to just see how uh, powerful the, the, the Dutch were in this world. This is, I mean... These days, the Dutch are not so powerful. So so talk about this kind of... Uh, they uh, kicked
1: most people's butts in the World Cup, though, didn't they? D- yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Dutch, yeah. Well, the heyday was the 17th century. Uh, and and, and for, for some decades, then, they were the global economic powerhouse. Nature gave the Netherlands nothing but mud. Uh, there's nothing there. So they had to invent whole new ways of making money. It's a fitting symbol that New York emerged from New Amsterdam, really. It's, um, they invented the futures market. They invented the stock exchange. They invented the public limited company. They, they they invented the global corporation. Way, way above their numerical weight class, really, the Dutch. And they established a seaborne trading empire. They didn't own that much because it's an expensive business, is owning. You, uh, you have to pay vast amount of troops. They owned trading posts uh, through which they acted as middlemen. Fabrics coming out of China, silks, uh, India as well, of course. Copper, silver, and for a while gold coming out of Japan. Sugar, coffee, slaves coming out of uh, Java, it's now Indonesia and Malaysia. So this is how they made the money. They made a lot of it for a while. But by the end of the 18th century, By that point, they really were punching above their weight class, and uh, they no longer had the uh, resources to defend what they owned. So when the Dutch and the British found themselves on opposite sides of the Napoleonic Wars, then uh, the British sailed around the globe and helped themselves. And that was kind of the end of heavyweight Dutch power on the world scene. The British sort of gave them back Southeast Asia after the Napoleonic War to help. Prop up uh, the new kingdom of the Netherlands, which for a while included Belgium, uh, to act as a sort of bulwark against France. But uh, no, uh, the game was more was more or less up for them by then. But 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 they're still a resourceful nation, and uh, they they've always realised the world doesn't owe it a living. And uh, and there's even now a lot to admire, I think, about the Dutch state and the way it um, conducts their business.
0: Talk about uh, creating the characters and, and the, the character arcs in this novel because at the beginning of the novel we meet uh, Jacob de Zoet. T- tell us who he is and, and where he came from for you. I mean, what? how did you choose this character out of all the people that you could have created? And...
1: His stem cell from which he grew was really the scene where We go on to Dejima for the first time, and I I, I have to sort of broadband a lot of Japanese and Dutch names, a lot of information at the reader all at once. All well and good, but the risk of doing that, and I do have to do it, Uh, we are going into a new world here, and there's a lot of information to tell, but the risk of doing that is that, of course, the reader gets swamped in it, unless there's quite a powerful, compelling drive through that. The drive is that... um, this very law-abiding young man is brought over from Zealand a, a book of psalms that's been in his family for generations and uh at one point literally stopped a bullet boring into the heart of one of his ancestors. He wouldn't be here without this book. The law was that because of the Japanese fear and loathing of Christianity that all Christian artefacts and books had to be surrendered, put in a barrel and sealed for the duration of uh, their own estate. But he just can't do it because it would be like trampling on on an image of Christ for him. It would be a form of apostasy. So uh, he smuggles it ashore and he's terrified. He doesn't know if he'll be caught. He doesn't know what will happen to him if he's caught. So there's a, a, a sort of pre-install into that chapter when he's going on to Dejima for the first time, the propulsive engine of fear. And I really wanted to keep that, and he sort of grew either side from that scene, from that chapter. This means he has to be somewhat pious, somewhat God-fearing, in what I soon found out was, um, was, was a very impious, very non-God-fearing milieu it's a nest of vipers when where everyone is in it just for themselves, and that sort of moral uprightness that defines him and defines his story arc as well, so sometimes um a character can grow from the requisites of just one scene
0: you know you were talking about the uh, broadbanding this information to the reader. And that's one of the things I think you do very well is uh, what in the science fiction world is called world building. Because I have to say that almost none of this was in any way familiar to me. I mean, I know a little bit, knew a little bit about the history. But what you do so well in this novel is immerse us in a completely new world and build that world for us both visually so that we can see it um, in a, as a movie, as we read the book, but also socially and culturally and with a lot of uh, very subtle nuances uh, in terms of the the culture clash. And the prose, though, is so accessible and so page-turningly compelling and seems kind of modern almost. And that's what I was talking about in terms of translation, that you create this otherworldly history for us in something that is really an immediate immersive reading experience for somebody here in the 21st century
1: well firstly thank you very much for the kind things you say about my writing in that question secondly sure I've read my fair share probably more than my fair share of Frank Herbert and Ursula Le Guin and, and I would agree there's no substantial difference between recreating a world from the past and recreating a world set in the future with the one proviso that when you're doing it from the past you can be wrong mm. uh, whereas when you're doing it in the future you can't be wrong you can merely be more or less effective or more or less internally consistent or more or less plausible to implausible well, um, another genre you didn't mention was crime mm-hmm. um, and you, uh, you're talking about the sentences and um, and uh, I guess the are. Uh, Large number of one-line paragraphs that uh, are used that stop before you get to the right-hand margin, which is the trick I learned at the feet of James Elroy. That's really, how, that's how he writes. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard, and uh, it makes your prose feel like a indefatigable assault. Uh, each s- sentence is a blow. It's wham, 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 wham. Uh, if your eye doesn't reach the right hand margin and then have to jump back to the left then it gives your prose an unbroken fluid feel you're also reading more vertically mm-hmm. from top down as opposed to left right left right left right like a um, like you're watching a, a tennis match mm. uh, and which of course is more Japanese when you're reading from the top down it also obliges you to actually think about haiku uh, you've got to do got to do a heck of a lot in one sentence, in a short sentence, before you touch the right-hand margin. And that means each word has to work harder. It means there's no room for flab. And it means you have to pack as much as you can, as thoughtfully as you can, into as small a suitcase as you can get away with. That was the ground rule I set for the novel quite early on. And um, I quite like the idea. Historical novels we associate with... ...historical costume dramas on TV where people talk in these terrific, mellifluous, yet very, very long sentences with few full stops or periods, and the, the punctuation you meet is commas, parentheses, semicolons, colons, and in a Proustian sense... Relative clause after relative clause, rather like this sentence here. You've probably forgotten the beginning of this sentence, and I certainly know I have, and yet we can go on and on and on. This is how sort of it is perceived people used to speak in history. I mean, they didn't, but uh, this is what we've inherited from the 19th century novelists who are, who, who, and Proust himself who did write like this. The idea of actually throwing that out the window and writing like James Elroy, yet it's a historical n- novel with people wearing wigs, uh, that really appealed to me. So um that was one of the uh items in this sort of short stylistic constitution every novel does have if the writer realizes or, realizes it or not but it's good to be
0: aware of it. Now one of the things I think was so great about this novel is the the way you uh uh orchestrate the the tone at the beginning this novel it's it's hilarious. It's funny. And it's one of the things I like. It's very surreal and kind of absurd in a way. It's it plays like a like a, 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 um Terry Gilliam movie almost. It's just it's filled oh, wow. with all these weird details and 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 the, the language is really funny. At one point somebody uh, says something's hoity toity, and and I, I just love the way that 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 you uh, do that.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat. Uh, that means I'm doing my job. Um, that means I'm learning how to do my job uh, well, moderately well, I guess. Uh, learning, anyway. Uh, you never stop learning about writing. Um, language, language.
0: Did you see humor? that it's um, kind of surreal? I mean, that's kind of the way, my experience of this book, It's it's kind of surreal at first because it's so odd.
1: My experience of the world is that it's regularly surreal. Just, <laughs> just uh, front page of the New York Times this morning was uh, a f- contained a photograph of Hillary Clinton and uh, I think the U.S. Defense Secretary uh, at the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea, and through a window, uh, a North Korean troop was peering at them. They were ignoring him. He wasn't quite sure what these people were doing there or who they were. That's surreal. <laughs> uh, uh, the word surreal can t- is seven letters long and four of them are real and only three of them are sur. Uh, reality is surreal. <laughs> uh, and I guess looking back through the telescope of time which is what a historical novel is, uh, then we see things that aren't around now more, which would strike us perhaps as more surreal now than did then. And people, hopefully, if they're still human beings doing radio interviews 300 years from now, they m- or writing historical novels set now 300 years from now, they might look back at our world now and thinking, wow, they were a whacked-out
0: bunch. They really were. Uh, how <laughs> surreal. Yet still as it's our everyday lives. Uh could you talk about uh I mean you spent eight years in Japan, didn't you
1: I did I did, and that can often feel quite surreal as well <laughs> to it, a visitor, but mm-hmm. not to the Japanese. It's where they live, which is the point uh speak about japan
0: um yeah I mean it must that, that your your time there must have informed this book yeah, yeah. or oh, the book wouldn't exist without it, most certainly, I wouldn't have been in Nagasaki without mm. it uh,
1: had I not been there uh might not have been a writer, I don't know. Maybe I would have been, but perhaps a somewhat different writer. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, um, but it's a bit hard to know where to start. It was a big chunk of my life, uh, eight years, nine years. What made you go there in the first place? Um, uh, a young lady. Oh. Mm. And, and she became your wife, is it? Uh, that would be the great version of the story. Uh, that um, Reality can be a bit more... Complex than that, but uh, uh, and it is. I'm being evasive, aren't I? Okay, okay, no, uh, she wasn't my wife,
0: but uh, but but we parted on very amicable terms, and uh, and she's a friend. Well, um, when you went there, did you speak the language? Were you, were you as out of as much a fish out of water as as uh, Yako
1: is? Yes, yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, going back to your early or your earlier autobiographical point, which I suppose I was evasive about that question too, but uh, yeah. Um, that's a good way to put it. I was as much a fish out of water as Jacob is. Um, you're using the perfect Dutch pronunciation, oh, okay. Jacob, which is fine. And if you're happy with that, do. Uh, I'm 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 uh, I'm using the long tradition of Anglicising Jacob into Jacob. But uh, but there's something for translators to think about, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which version
0: should we use? Uh, Stories form a a, a really important part of this novel. I mean, there's so many references to stories and the import of stories in our lives. There's a great line, ink you most fecund of liquids. And uh, then there's another line, when shaving thinks Jacob, a man rereads his truest memoirs. And and I love these kind of lines and these references to to story as as um, as it is important to the story that is being told.
1: Thank you, again, um, uh, we are storytelling animals, this isn't a particularly original observation but we are, what's the difference between memory and story, I'm not sure there is much difference, if any, I think they're two words of the same thing, just memory tend to be, memories tend to be stories about ourselves, Imagine, but look at what we are without them, I mean we're, We only work as functioning organisms because we remember when we get up in the morning who and what we were when we went to bed. That's what our personality is, that's what our identity is, it's story. It's the same story in a continuum. Human beings are narrative animals. Stories are who we are, Uh, they form our memories, they form how we perceive the future is going to be, they keep us going, they create social bonding, it's true in the Paleolithic era sat around a campfire attending stories about hunting woolly mastodons as now watching CSI going to the movies it's all stories it's not so much they are key to human life as they are human life mm. uh, and a novelist is sort of one more mm, not particularly modern but not ancient either 300 years old or so mutation of the story it's 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 just a story form and and it's how i'm i'm lucky enough to be able to make a living at the moment
0: this novel um starts out with a, a somewhat comedic and light tone and then uh you dial that back as as the story progresses and so talk about creating this this really rich and, and dense plot that 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 uh propels the story and makes it really it's a great adventure story in in, in terms of being an adventure story as well.
1: Well thank you. Uh plots seem to grow rather than be constructed ahead of the event. There's a lot I wanted to get into the book. Mm-hmm. Japanese viewpoints, Dutch viewpoints, the corruption, the hidden Christians, the British arriving into the into this world that um, both the Dutch and the Japanese know and take for granted, but the British don't know a thing about it. And it, in a way, recreates the experience of the reader arriving into the book as well, not knowing a thing about what we're getting ourselves into. And, you know, you just sort of grow tendrils from one subplot to another and organically let them interact
0: and feed into one another. Uh, Did you know about Inomoto's secret when you started the novel?
1: There's that one, yeah, yeah, that one.
0: I mean, had you researched that? It's such a fascinating uh, uh, plot, and I don't want to necessarily talk about the plot itself. But did you, when you started the novel, did you know where you were going to go as far as that went?
1: You need an antagonist. Mm. You need a. You need, for want of a better word, you need a villain or a source of evil or antagonists to clash against your protagonists. Now, in fiction villains can be really rubbish really easily mm. uh because their motivations can just be so crass, just predictable and cliche ridden and uh and it's one of the hardest things to do in an intriguing way sort of what motivates the 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 enemy force is the amorality that your upright moral identifiable with characters run up against and uh and I thought and thought and thought and thought and um well, I'm also at the point in my life, I'm 41. When you're 31, certainly when you're 21, you know you're going to die one day. But when you're 41, you know you're going to die because your body is starting to tell you this. You've lost that immortality. You have to be a little bit more careful in the shower. Isn't it? When you're 21, hey, have a shower. When you're 41, I want to make sure I don't slip over here. When you're 81, you have to be extremely careful about having a shower, you know? Um, so... I suppose it's a version of my midlife crisis. If you could cheat death, then really what would you do to do so? I think a lot of us would be capable of much, much more than we'd like to think we would be if the result would be that we could cheat death. And uh, that's where Enomoto is coming from.
0: One of the things I think that you do really well in this novel is, uh, do there's all sorts of uh, time slicing and, and you know, med- you were talking about growing old. There's a lot of meditation about time, and I, I love this line: "Fire consumes time, ta- consumes time, uh, thinks Otani, and time consumes us."
1: Oh, right. Fire consumes one.
0: wood, and time consumes us.
1: Fire consumes wood, and time consumes us. Yeah, it does, is not it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank you. I'd forgotten that line. And,
0: and I think that this gets to uh, something that you do very well is to convey that um, uh, kind of slicing with time. There's a there's a scene in, in the garden where we're kind of going back and forth. And there's another scene where um, there are two kind of conversations taking place at the same time. And you do this kind of uh, uh, cut and paste. It's almost like a, a, a film cuts.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm glad you think it works. You have to be careful doing backstory in a narrative that's already set 200 years ago. Because mm-hmm. uh, then you've got uh, you've got a past participle situation. I was walking to school. I had eaten breakfast. English just gives you two layers. Mm. Uh, the, pa- uh, the simple past and then the past participle, kind of the past in the past. If you're doing backstory in a historical novel, you actually need three, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is more than English can do. So you, you have to watch out for it and be... Careful and I polishing and repolish the novel. That's something I had to scale back a bit. It was probably more originally, but uh, thank you.
0: I'm glad you think it works. Water and bridges, of course, play a, an important part in this, and to the point where one of our favorite characters is named uh, Dr. Marinus, and he's a student of Linnaeus. Uh, so talk about creating this part of history because, you know what, one thing that I found really interesting is that it always seems, no matter when a novel is set, science always seems to be on the verge of some huge revelation about life, about humanity, about what it means to be on this earth. And it doesn't matter whether it's 1800 or the 21st century, we're always just about to make some startling new discovery that seems like it's going to be the final discovery.
1: really, really.
0: And I think Linnaeus, Marinus and Linnaeus are really interesting. Uh, You know, uh, Linnaeus is not necessarily a character, but Marinus and and his his vision is really, he's an interesting character. I would agree with you that, and I haven't thought about it before, but yes,
1: modern societies uh, from the pre-modern era to now do tend to think that they're on the verge of a threshold. We like to think we're special whenever we happen to have been born, I think. But the for the period 1750 through to 1800, say that half century that that has come to be called the Enlightenment, it really was something rather special. Uh, you're conducting this interview with an iPad in front of you. Uh, the principles that make that iPad possible were sorted out and laid down by the Linnaeuses and his disciples, the Malinuses of history. This recording studio. Uh, our infrastructure, the internet, etc., etc. It's only possible because human beings in this period began to think in a cold, hard, objective, scientific manner. They began to think of evidence and proof and theses and antitheses. They began to think in these terms. They began to realize that superstition, and I know this is still a controversial thing to say, but to a point, religion as well. They may fulfil some human needs and those human needs are not to be sneezed at, but they won't make the internet. They won't make a kidney dialysis machine. Uh, They won't reduce the infant mortality rate from one in 10 to one in 100,000. You've got to have scientific minds, I'm afraid, like it or not, to do this. This comes from the Enlightenment. We wouldn't be here probably without it because of that medical breakthroughs in that time uh, and that stem from that time. The lack of those medical breakthroughs would have meant that one of our ancestors would have died in childbirth, uh, which is sort of uh, why I chose the first chapter of the book the way I did. There's a scene where a birth is going wrong. Olito, the midwife, uh, the principal female character, is able to save the uh, the the infant because she has in her head an engraving that was done by one of these uh, enlightenment period doctors she knows where to put a hand she knows what's going wrong it's a picture saving a life it's knowledge saving a life we are the ancestors of that saved kid who would have died we're only here because of the enlightenment in a literal dna sense you see it's a uh, it's the generals and the uh, admirals who get all the historical glory and uh, and the statesmen but uh the real heroes for me are are the largely unsung medical pioneers who cracked who cracked smallpox who cracked cholera the bubonic plague public health officials polio you know it, it, it's the men and
0: women who worked in these fields that have really built the modern era it, it, yet one of the things I think that's nice about this book is there's a a sense of destiny and faith through throughout it we really feel that there's an uh, an almost a uh, supernatural force guiding these characters or pulling them through this very complicated scheme of events uh, uh what is it uh, the 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 weaverless loom of events I think that that you describe it uh, a, as a writer um, when you're creating this, how much of this flows from you as you're how much of this happens when you're writing and how much of it happens, I guess, offline when you're thinking or, or you know, or I I'm guessing you don't do a lot of outlining. Or maybe you do?
1: Um I do local outlining. I plan scenes mm-hmm. much more than I plan the whole trajectory of the novel. Uh and and in a five hundred page book like this, I mean, um uh, I think uh, to really do a detailed pre planned outline would be you'd hit the same problems as the leaders of the old USSR attempting to do a five year plan. <laughs> it, 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 they, were, they were notoriously useless, <laughs> it didn't work. Uh, so you, 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 you have to allow both linguistic happy accidents like the weaver's loom and um, plot happy accidents as well. With the characters, quite late on in the book, my editor, my editor, just asked me one question, just just an off-the-cuff question. She asked uh, whether the the fifteen or so European in- inhabitants of Dejima wanted to be there, uh, whether they saw it as a plum job, or whether they were rather sent there uh, as uh, in a penal sense, almost whether Dejima was a kind of a sin bin. And uh, that was a great. That question was a happy accident. It made me think. Well that's a really good question who are they how did they get there and why don't I put that why don't I give each European a sort of two, three page and and, and some of the Japanese characters as well just just two or three pages all of their own to uh, let us just get an insight a, a sort of character dejima in a way just a, a little crack in the armour and just see who they are uh, that's a happy accident uh, I hadn't planned it but uh but it happened when you're writing, I think a part of the process of writing is keeping open the window for the bluebird of happy accident to fly in
0: and 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 perform for you and fly out again you know in a novel set in the past the the character's future and is still our past and, and mm-hmm. I love some this kind of uh uh I guess, overlapping perspective that the reader and the characters have. Um, there's there's a great uh, lecture that I had you read from where they're talking about, you know, what the, the possible future uh, of Japan for them, and, and that's the certain past for us. Mm-hmm. And so for you as a writer, you've got to create—you're operating from the perspective of knowing what's going to happen— but yet your characters are op- have no idea what's going to happen and so it strikes me that creating characters who don't know what's going to happen historically when you do know what's going to happen historically must be something of a challenge
1: um you can have a lot of fun with it but uh in a way it's not so hard as you imagine because all you can um all you have to do is to translate back to them what they feel about their possible futures what we feel about our possible futures. We also don't know what's going to be happening. We also are are worried by the future, uh, occasionally optimistic about it, and quite often not. You just translate that back uh, and slightly whimsically think about someone writing a historical novel about 2010 in the year t- 2160, uh, <laughs> and think, well, how would they view view our present? And uh, the answer to that question is what you do for your characters living, breathing, and walking around in 1799 and 1800.
0: One of the things you talked about was that these characters are, um, they're kind of left behind, and there's this feeling, I think, of being marooned in the novel. I think that that feeling of being marooned and left behind, either in time or out of the culture, or being, you know, part of a know one culture when you belong with another like the the secret Christians do. Yeah, there's a there's a kind yeah. of a, a feeling of, of being marooned in this novel that permeates the characters' perspectives.
1: You're right. You are right. There's a lot of marooning going on in the novel. Um, I, I was aware of the obvious one. Uh, the ship stopped coming from Batavia because of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they, they can't get through. The British, uh, the British are seizing them out at sea. So no ships come to relieve the Europeans there, uh, for year after year. And mm-hmm. they don't know why and they don't know if they'll be dying there. They don't know the Japanese are starting to are starting to think are the Dutch this strong European superpower that they've assured us they always have been. Uh they're in a tough situation. That marooning's quite obvious, but now you mention it, yeah, there's more marooning going on, indeed.
0: One of the things I think that I, I like, talk about just creating your, the, this cast of characters or, or Rito, and, and I love uh, Grote. <laughs> he's a really great character. I, you have a lot of fun with some of your characters. He's a humor vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but um, I that you meet people like that in life. He's a, he's a sort of a wharf rat. He's a, not educated, but wow, he's got a sharp mind. Uh, he's got a brilliant command of practical economics. Uh, you would want him running your hedge fund as long as... Well, actually, you wouldn't because you'd be afraid he'd run off with your money, but uh, he would be an ancestor of of people who brought about the toxic loans systems and did very, very well out of it and got out before it crashed, uh, I'm sure. But um, talking about humour earlier, fiction, prose without humour, it's, uh, it's, it's indigestible. Mm. Uh, humour is yeast, humour is salt... Uh, humour is crucial. Uh, however, grave and serious the, well, no, I can think of some contexts where humour might be inappropriate, but 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 there's not that many. There are human beings there, and uh, humour is a form of wisdom. Don't you think? Mm, mm-hmm. um, what is it? Um, I found this quotation: um, humour is common sense dancing.
0: I like that isn't that great, well, you know it's not me, but it's great it's well, great. what what you have you have an equally good one in here, where you said a a a joke is a secret hidden inside language
1: uh that's just about how um it's so hard to translate as well uh mm-hmm. you need a high, high, high working knowledge, especially for word jokes mm-hmm. uh, it depends on the form of joke, but you need background, you need context. This is why every nation on earth thinks that it has a uniquely gifted sense of humor and other countries, well, they probably make jokes, but, you know, while well, the British make jokes about German jokes being unfunny, uh, but uh, everyone thinks that they have, that of all the peoples on earth, they are the true keepers of the flame. It's because they're so hard to translate and probably untranslatable.
0: And uh, we were talking, you're talking about the importance of, of medicine. Medical technology, and I think one of the things that that I found really interesting was this uh, Otane, the, the the folk woman who who lives in the woods. Uh, when when you show us her cabinets, I think, wow, that's there's somebody who's you know literally hundreds of years ahead of her time.
1: Uh, she's a herbalist, or mm-hmm. as you say here, an herbalist. Herbalist, Sorry. yeah, an herbalist. Oh, they were ahead of their time. Most of the modern-day pharmaceutical breakthroughs, they come from plants. It's things that have been growing wild for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Uh, So, yeah, um, herbalists were ahead of their time. And they'll probably still be around after
0: our time as well, I think. And, And she's just one of a number of characters that... I have this feeling that a lot of your characters, almost all your characters, you seem to really like a lot. There's a real generous feeling behind the the vision of people in this book that even um the characters who are who are villains are they're at least we understand them and, and even Inamoto has you know some virtues so talk about just that being generous with your characters do you just have fun with them
1: uh what you generously call being generous uh i would call three dimensional characterization mm. and two dimensional is no good it hamstrings your book uh it's not good enough uh people aren't people aren't two dimensional um we may think of them as being two dimensional sometimes but that's our problem uh and our shortcoming and well that leads to all sorts of trouble regularly um ultimately war actually <laughs> if you think uh, people in another country are all two-dimensional and don't feel and think and believe the same way you do so uh, uh it's a part of i mean it, for me it's a part of um it's a basic requirement of the novelist that the characters uh, are rounded and there's reasons for the way they are and reasons behind those reasons Pathological misers, something makes them pathological misers. Uh, and, well, you can either hate them for being pathological misers and hold them in contempt, or you can try to understand why they are the way they are. For example, thinking of Charles Dickens' Scrooge. Um, he's a great character, and that's a great book, uh, because he turns a two-dimensional miser into a three-dimensional human being, and and actually in that. Scrooge finds redemption. Scrooge turns himself. Uh that's his journey. Uh but the same thing goes on in all halfway decent books, I think. Um
0: Well, I think this uh you have another great line where uh uh Jacob asks Marinus where the soul is, and uh Marinus replies that the soul is a verb, not a noun. And I think that goes to a lot to your characterization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Language can pull this trick on us. It gives us these nouns like uh, soul, uh, inspiration, creativity, curiosity. Uh, linguistically they're nouns, but, uh, but you can only talk about them in terms of verbs, in terms of what they do, in terms of how they impact upon you and affect you and the environment. Uh, they try to net them but they go through the holes in the net because they're verbs really
0: you know as far as verbs go this book is a verb in that it feels like like an arrow launched in 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 our, or or a, a train leaving the station um and, and i understand that you're working on some books that will uh, echo from and and reverberate from this book
1: yes i am um it's part one of a sort of a loose trilogy not a styglass and kind of trilogy uh it will be looser than that that but the the linking theme, the um the writing that goes all the way through the rock will be the character marinus who uh is probably only sort of number 5 or 6 in terms of um, lines in the book it's, it's only the fifth or, or sixth biggest part but uh, I think when he's around he he, he rather steals the show mm-hmm. and uh, he'll, he'll be in the next book which is set in the present and uh, the book afterwards which will be set in the future um, there's more to him than he seems uh, I didn't include it in this book because I don't want people thinking they have a fantasy on their hands but uh, uh, his relationship with death is a particular one and uh, it's that that allows him to have some future lives in in our present and our and our future.
0: Well, this sounds really fascinating. How how much of these books do you know about now, and how far are you into them? Uh, part two, the one
1: I'm doing now, I'm, I'm, I'm probably one one eighth, one seventh of of, of of the way through, and the one after, I've I've just got a few sketchy ideas for it, but uh, the, those sketchy ideas will be its spine.
0: Um, now. It sounds like uh, when you're writing a novel set in the future, and you've done this before, you've you've written science fiction before, Uh, talk about how that kind of uh, writing informs your historical writing.
1: All worlds are built by the same forces. Uh, Societies are. Um, Every society is uh, an answer to the question, how can we meet the basic human needs and the more complex human needs? Uh, that's what society is. It, it's an answer. Now, it may, and for most of human history, it's been a very ineffective, frankly, unsatisfactory, from our democratic point of view, of an answer. It's, it's, they've been pretty rubbish answers most of the time, but it's what they are. Our liberal-ish, democratic-ish societies are, I think, amongst the best answers that human beings have ever found for this question, how can we meet our needs? But, of course, they're far from perfect. This is as true in the past as it is for the future. When you're writing a future society, when you're dreaming one up, uh, that's where you start. How are the needs of uh, for shelter, for food, uh, water, sanitation, sex, work? How are these basic human needs to be met in this society? When you think about a past society, when you're writing something set in the past, how were these, me- these needs set then? Um, how is power distributed? What is the electrical circuitry of power?
0: Belief in your book, at least
1: in part. Uh, that's always true. Yeah, um, when I was talking, I'm, I'm aware now, I was bracketing superstition and religion uh, in together when I was talking about the Enlightenment. I mean, to a degree, I'd like to retract uh, some of that and, and, and just say that there have been times when both religion and science have worked very well together. Uh, for a long time, it was the Christian Church that kind sort of kept literacy alive in Western Europe, and and and, and, and uh, that shouldn't be forgotten. I think uh, it's not always a clean dichotomy uh, between the two. And belief, yeah, uh, belief can achieve some beautiful, wonderful, powerful society-improving things. And if I don't necessarily believe in God, I do believe in belief. So. I suppose the short answer. That was a long answer. The short answer: there's less difference between the past and the future, and creating worlds set in the two, respectively,
0: as they might appear. I've been speaking with David Mitchell. His new novel is *The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet*. Thank you for joining me, David. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>